Hi, friends. Welcome to the Greedy and Curious Show. I'm your host, Austin Schlesinger, the founder of Greedy and Curious, where we are in a mission to inspire the creator inside of you. My guest today is the Greedy and Curious, Anjana Schreeder. She is the author of the book, Healthcare of a Thousand Slights. It's a book about the impact of policy-based discrimination on healthcare outcomes in marginalized communities. Today, we talk about a lot of different things. But first, we discuss why she wanted to write a book in the first place, what her book is about. We dive into the book writing process and what it takes to write a book. We discuss how she kept herself organized throughout the process. Um, We talked about what her plan is to market her book, what advice she'd give to someone who wants to write their own book and what it means to be gritty and curious. It was a super insightful conversation and I'm very excited to share it with you all. So let's get right into it. I guess the first question I want to ask you is, why did you want to write this book? What inspired you to write this book? Yeah, absolutely. Um, So to start off, I think for me, what was really important was thinking about two different subject areas and how they could come together. So in the case of this book, I was thinking specifically about social justice and healthcare. So oftentimes in social justice spaces, especially when we're talking about the way that social justice is discussed in mainstream In mainstream media, for example, we often talk about it in the context of civil rights or education or housing, but we don't often talk about social justice from a healthcare standpoint. And on the flip side, in a healthcare setting, we don't often associate healthcare with social justice necessarily, right? So I think there is a movement now in healthcare to start talking about what are the other aspects of a patient's life that we need to consider when we're discussing how to make sure that they improve their healthcare outcomes. But there isn't necessarily a broader conversation about what's happening to this patient, what are the systems that were that are in place that have allowed this patient to suffer the health outcomes that they have. And so what I was inspired by was why don't we bring these two worlds that are at this point in time often talked about separately together. So the way that I decided to go about writing the book is considering, let's take a look at all of the different marginalized communities that exist in the United States, what their historical trajectory has been in the sense of, you know, how did they get to the United States? How have they been treated both culturally and politically? And how has that resulted in the healthcare outcomes that they currently have? So that's sort of the, the thinking behind writing about this topic and also understanding where we should be going moving forward. Well, they're two super interesting topics and they definitely play together and you started writing this book before covid Mm -hmm. before floyd situation and everything that's going on with that Mm -hmm. and obviously these two topics are coming to light right now and people are realizing that how connected they are Mm -hmm. how did your the process of writing a book i'm sure you had a plan before all this happened Mm -hmm. change as a result of everything that's going on in the world today. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in the beginning, I was thinking of my book as sort of a a bit more historical. So, you know, let's take a look at the past, you know, 400, 500 years of history and analyze the ways in which different communities have come to the United States, the sorts of policies that have impacted them and shaped their opportunity to access healthcare. But especially when COVID-19 started, Um, especially started hitting the United States in a very big way was around mid-March. And around that time, that's when news started to come out about how the crisis was impacting, disproportionately impacting Black and brown people, in particular low-income community members. 
And so when, well, while I was writing, I started to collect more and more information about healthcare disparities, specifically within the context of COVID-19. And what was really interesting is that a lot of my research pointed to the, vulnerab- the healthcare vulnerabilities of a lot of these communities. So for example, it's very common for a Black individual to be experiencing hypertension or diabetes because they tend to live in a community or they tend to live in an area that's far away from stores that sell fresh produce. And those areas are called food deserts, right? And so ultimately, all of that impacts a person's health in general, but we've had a chance to see that more specifically because of the pandemic. And I think to your second point about, you know, justice for George Floyd and the increasing importance of the Black Lives Matter movement um, in the context of police brutality, it was interesting to start thinking about police brutality as a public health issue, which I don't think it's been previously framed that way before. So I've definitely been doing more research about different phenomena that have been occurring to different communities, um, specifically in this case, the Black community, and how those issues could be framed as public health issues. So that's definitely affected the research that I've been doing, and it's made me realize I need to write an entire chapter about these current events while recognizing that things are still occurring and things might still be changing. Yeah, it's so crazy that all this stuff is happening right now Mm -hmm. because the conversations I've had with my friends about these things are like we're living in the middle of what's going to be wrote about in history books that are going to be taught to our kids. Like mm-hmm. I was talking to my friend the other day and he's like, what's going on in the African community, African American community right now is significantly more important than the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And I took a step back. He said that and I was like, I guess he's right because this it's these thoughts and the mobilization that's occurring right now is happening all over the globe. Mm -hmm. And because people have social media and it's so easy to share your opinion online now, Mm -hmm. it's very easy to share a message. And I just think it's amazing that this everything is going on right now. And it's, it's interesting to think about what the future is going to look like mm-hmm. and how this is going to the store how the narrative is going to be told in in history books absolutely so yeah when you said you know i need to dedicate a chapter to what's going on right now i'm like that's so important because there's so many events that are going on right now and there's so many so much information and mm-hmm. it really takes someone to kind of step back and say okay this is what's going on mm-hmm. and this is how this time period is going to be taught moving forward. And it's very, very interesting to think about. It's funny that you say that because I was thinking about your friend's comment. And I think what's really interesting is that current, the, the way, the ways in which the black community and other communities supporting the black community are mobilizing definitely pays, pays homage to, to the civil rights movement, right? Like let's, let's start to tear down Confederate statues. Let's protest in the streets. Let's get policies and legislation passed. So I think all of those things were happening at the same time in the 60s, right? With the Civil Rights Act of 1964 being passed, with integration being taken more seriously, and with protests happening all at the same time. In some ways, we're, we're living through a similar similar yet different political moment where there's increased uh, demand for accountability among politicians to ensure that 
policies are being passed that are supporting um, black lives and that are, you know, making sure that we're holding police officers accountable for their actions. And at the same time, there are people protesting on the streets. And at the same time, there are people pushing to elect certain types of people into office. So it's interesting because I wouldn't necessarily say that the current movement is more important, but it definitely continues to build upon past movements. And because of what you were saying earlier about the power of social media and the ability of people to share what's happening, those messages are being spread more quickly, which I think is really interesting. It's so interesting in terms of mobilization Mm -hmm. and scale. The tools that are available right now allow us to share those messages much more quickly. Mm -hmm. And as a result of being able to share those messages really quickly, there's, we have to be careful with the information that's being put out there. Yeah. And I was reading, it was a tweet that I just read and it was basically saying that people that are constantly sharing things on like social media is, and news outlets, they're in the business of grabbing people's attention. Mm -hmm. But for people like you and people that are, you know, writing books and sitting down and really thinking about these things, those are the most valuable, where the the most valuable thoughts are, because you're kind of thinking about these things and the effects of how information and how the story is going to be told moving forward, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Like I think to your point, because I'm writing, I'm definitely, you know, viewing any and all news media much more critically. But I think it's important that whomever is is consuming any sort of news media or information takes that responsibility seriously to say, what's being said? Is it being said in a way that's supporting a particular agenda? And why is it? Like, I think that's really, really important. Exactly. So you covered this a little bit, but mm-hmm. what is the the book writing process been like? And what kind of initially sparked your interest in, okay, even though I have these these two buckets of thought and I want to merge them together, mm-hmm. why was creating a book kind of your solution? And then what was the process to getting started? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the reason I, I thought that a book would be the right solution for this was I was looking at this idea of storytelling, right? What are the types of stories that are currently being told and what platforms are being used to tell those stories? So oftentimes I was definitely looking at you know, personal narratives from people who have suffered bias and discrimination in healthcare settings, who have suffered barriers to access in healthcare. Um, and those stories tend to take place in, you know, platforms like like a podcast or an article, something that's a little bit shorter. And a lot of a lot more historical information would be found in things like textbooks. So I was like, what is sort of the in-between, right? Um, and to me, I thought it would make sense to merge both historical research and personal narrative by putting it all together in a book. And the way that I decided to structure the book, too, is very intentional because I realized that different communities in the United States have distinctly different histories in terms of how the federal, state and local governments have treated them and how that's ultimately impacted their access to health care. So, for example, I have separate chapters on the Black community, the Latinx community, the Asian American community, the Native American community, the LGBTQ plus community, etc. So to me, it was really important to not only be intentional about intentional about blending different types of stories, so historical evidence, personal narrative, research, etc., but it was also important to me to tell those stories very clearly and point out the distinctions between the histories of these different communities. I love that. And like the I think it's so cool how 
people organize that information in their head and kind of think about the best way to display it in a way that's digestible Mm -hmm. and is relevant to the message that you're trying to evoke. So I guess, how did you come up with that structure? How did you identify the communities that you wanted to focus in on? Mm -hmm. And what's your overall goal with focusing on each one of these buckets? Is it more or less to show awareness or is it to say, okay, this is, this is what's going on and this is a solution to Mm. what's going on? Yeah. So I think this sounds like a two-part question. So I'll I'll try to answer both parts. So it sounds like the first part of the question is, you know, why did I choose to focus on the communities that I chose to focus on? Um, And I think for me, what was really important is that we often hear this term communities of color, right? Communities of color suffer higher barriers to access to healthcare. Communities of color uh, often suffer bias and discrimination in healthcare settings. So I wanted to unpack that term because you know, people of color, it's a really broad term. You're talking about a lot of different types of people with a lot of different experiences. So I wanted to do a deeper dive in the research and I found out based, you know, based on data and such, what the different categories were when people are talking about people of color. And so the biggest ones that folded out to me were uh, Black Americans, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and Latinx Americans. So for me, what was really interesting was that, you know, each of these communities, like I said earlier, has a different and distinct history when we talk about emigrating or coming to the United States. For example, a lot of Black Americans, they are descendants of of enslaved people, and enslaved people were brought to the United States against their will. And that looks very, very different compared to an Asian American person who migrated after 1965 as a result of change, a change in immigration policy nationally. So I wanted to be very clear and intentional about the fact that, you know, all of these communities are suffering from different types of disparities, but their histories and how they got here and their experiences while living in the United States are very different. And it sounds like the the second part of the question was, you know, how do we, how did, how did, like, where is this all going, right? Like, is there a solution to all of this? So what I tried to focus on in the book is not only talking about the history of each of these communities and how they've suffered access, uh, barriers to access to care, bias and discrimination, et cetera, but what possible solutions exist. So the way that I thought about this is I recently graduated from a graduate program at um, NYU's Wagner School of Public Service, and I got my degree in, uh, uh, in public administration. So public policy, thank you so much. Public policy is always something that's at the forefront of, you know, what sorts of solutions can we build? So I was thinking, you know, what are the different policy solutions that we can use to drive, to, to be an engine to drive change? And then the other facet of healthcare that more and more people are starting to pay attention to is technology, right? So how are we using technology, especially now during the COVID-19 pandemic, we're talking way more about telemedicine and telehealth. How do we get more people access to healthcare by encouraging them to use softwares that help them connect with their physicians, right? So looking at technology and looking at policy as two potential solutions, what what do those pathways mean for communities of color and vulnerable communities in the United States when it comes to access to care? So I wanted to not only be responsible in researching the history of these communities with respect to access to healthcare, but also determine what solutions are currently being implemented to ensure that access to healthcare continues to be a priority and healthcare outcomes for each of these communities starts to achieve parity.
Yeah, absolutely. So I think in terms of the the general research process, what I've always found helpful is that, you know, I'm not researching one specific subject, right? So I'm looking at a bunch of different things. So for me, I was able to find a lot of research through different investigative journalistic articles or uh, peer-reviewed journals that focus on sociology or anthropology. And then obviously, in some cases, looking at medical journals, right? So I was able to draw my research from a variety of different sources. And I recognize that that's going to be incredibly important because of the way that I'm writing my book. Um, a lot of the historical information came from more anthropological and historical sources, whereas the, the stuff that about policies and technology came from journal reviews as well as from articles online. And I think specifically with your question about tech, what I tried to focus on is, you know, what are the startups that are out there that are focusing specifically on these problems, right? What are the startups that really care about access to healthcare for vulnerable communities and how are they making that happen? And so I was able to do that through, you know, through some digging around on the internet, you know, obviously through through Google Scholar and, you know, things like that, using more formal platforms to research. But I also found it really helpful that I was able to dig around a little bit on LinkedIn. So I, I think my background in healthcare research and marketing came in handy because I used to work for a company called Advisory Board down in D.C. And all of Advisory Board's clients are hospitals and health systems. And so whenever someone would like an advisory board post or uh, an article or anything like that. And I thought what they had to say was interesting. I'd look them up on LinkedIn, see what they were about, see if they were people that I'd be interested in interviewing. And then I'd reach out and interview them and say, hey, I noticed that you're somebody on somebody who is a C-suite member of this startup team. And it sounds like you care about this healthcare issue. I'd love to hear more about what you do. So some of it was in some cases, just, you know, finding people who are interested in this topic and getting their thoughts on how their technology product is actually moving things forward. So your research process actually sounds a lot like Raul's research process, and that was the the title of our pod. Our, the title of our podcast was "How to Get an Interview with a Billionaire," and that that might be why there mm-hmm. was so much that got so much traction. But anyways, I'm really interested in learning more about how you reach out to these C level mm-hmm. people on LinkedIn because a lot of people are hesitant to (laughs) contact them because they're like, I'm going to be judged. They're not going to respond to me. It's not worth it. So how do you approach these people in a way that's kind of inviting and the increase the likelihood that they're actually going to take action and, you know, help you out? Yeah, absolutely. So I think for me, the biggest thing is, and I appreciate that you brought up the question of like, oh, I'm afraid to reach out to these people because they might not respond to me. And I think that is the worst thing that can happen, right? Them not responding to you. And that's not that's not the, the most worst thing in the world, somebody not responding to you. So the, the point is that you have to take the shot and, and that you have to try. So for me, um, I always start off by saying, hey, like I noticed that you posted this thing. Um, I'm actually writing a book about this topic. And these are the ideas I'm thinking about exploring. I would love your perspective on X. And I think really 
being specific about what you want to talk to them about is really important. Showing them upfront that you've done your homework on the things that they care about and the things that they are experts in is really important. And um, being able to do that, I think, can go a really, really long way. And for me, I've been lucky in that uh, one or two, I've only had to do it with one or two people, but both of those people responded because of the way, I believe, because of the ways in which I asked, I formatted my ask. I was very clear. I was very specific. Um, I asked for 45 minutes of their time um, and I sent them the, the questions in advance. So I think being able to do that sort of prep work up front shows the person that you're sending the message to that you're serious, that you value their time and that you value their expertise. What's kind of like a sample cold message that you'd send? Um, I think a sample message. So I'll, I'll give one specific example. So I was able to reach out to a VP of sales at a startup in New York that's dedicated to improving the health of marginalized communities, right? Um, and so he had liked a post that had been shared by advisory board, my former employer. And so I reached out to him and I said, hey, I saw that you liked this post about social determinants of health and improving health outcome, uh, improving health outcomes among marginalized communities. I had a chance to look up the work that you're doing. And I think it's really interesting. I'm writing a book about this topic. Um, I'm planning to explore the histories of vulnerable communities and what it means for them to access healthcare and would love to get a perspective on how your startup does it, does its work. Would you be free for 45 minutes to chat? Um, and this person responded, you know, within a couple hours and said, yes, absolutely. Here are some dates and times. Let's get this scheduled. And we ended up having a really productive conversation. See, I love that. And people don't understand that when they're reaching out to people that they're, you know, asking them for something. Like I remember mm -hmm. when I was applying for internships and jobs and I was trying to network with people at the companies that I was trying to get a job with. Mm. At first, when you first begin, you're really reluctant to reach out to these people, but most people genuinely want to help others. So it's yeah. just a matter of kind of getting over that hump <laughs> and right. being like, you know what, I'm actually genuinely curious in what you're what you're doing and what how like what work you're you're doing and I would love to learn more about what you're what you're working on and just mm -hmm. learn more about your journey and stuff. That's something mm -hmm. I've learned from doing this podcast is that mm. reaching out to like cold emailing or cold messaging people on LinkedIn has been an awesome strategy for me. But the the two biggest takeaways I'd say for sending out cold emails is be brief and have a very clear call to action because right. nobody wants to read. Nobody has the time to read a huge paragraph of, of an introduction and what you're working <laughs> on and all this stuff. No, they want to know who are you? What are you doing? And what can I do to help you out? And then they'll make a decision whether they're going to help you out or not. But the biggest thing is to be brief. And I, I think that those are kind of like two really important things when it comes to mm -hmm. reaching out to people. Absolutely. I think at the risk of sounding cheesy, it's, you know, are you positioning your ask in a way that reflects the question, what's your story, right? Like, I'm curious about you. Um, and I, as opposed to I'm, I'm trying to make this transactional, and this is the exact thing that I want to get out of this conversation. So I think being open minded, but also framing it as like, hey, I'm interested in what you have to say, and what you have to say could be helpful is, is I think that makes all the difference. Exactly. So the next thing I want to I want to talk about is Writing a book is a huge process and you need to be very 
organized and structured in the way that you kind of go about doing it. So how do you keep yourself organized? Are there specific tools that you use? Like, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what's really helpful is, and I know Rahul must have mentioned this on his podcast episode, um, but what's been really helpful is that we're both writing our books under the guidance of Professor Eric Kester, who teaches at Georgetown, and he's provided a bunch of you know checklists and tools that we can use to make sure that we're we're telling the stories in the we're telling our stories in the way that we want them to be told. And so, what I think is helpful is, for example, when I'm going through a chapter that I've written, um, making sure that I'm including all of the elements in the chapter, which is typically you know. How much research do you have? Do you have a primary interview? Do you have a secondary interview source that you've researched? Do you have personal narrative? Do you have stats? So being able to use those checklists can be really helpful in understanding completion. And I think in terms of, you know, actually getting the writing done, there's definitely a certain level of discipline that needs to go into that. And what's been helpful for me is determining, you know, what time of day is most productive for me to write? How much time do I need to set aside to do that writing? Um, and once I figure that out, how do I then plan out my day and make sure I have time to do the other things in my life that are not writing? So I think those factors are put together are really important, like using the tools of, you know, what makes a great story, what makes a, what makes for a great chapter, and then what makes for great time management from a writer's standpoint. Um, all of those factors put together have been really helpful in ensuring that I'm able to, to write and to meet deadlines as I write. So how would you define a story? We talked about the storytelling at the beginning, and I'm always interested in hearing how people view storytelling because it's such a very important tool and Mm -hmm. people don't really realize it. Storytelling is being able to sell yourself. It's telling the story of your book. It could be telling a story of a specific chapter within your book. So what's your definition of a story? So it's funny that you asked that question because I think the the story the ba- the most basic form of storytelling is something that we all learn in middle school and then as we get older I think we just learn different iterations of how to tell that story right um, so I think most of us remember when we were in sixth or seventh grade in English class we learn about you know what makes a story in the context of you know there's a there's a rising action then there's something that makes everything change and then there's you hit the climax and then you come back down and then there's a resolution right so i think just keeping that image in mind is really helpful when thinking about how to tell a story and i think what's interesting is when you learn about that that storytelling mechanism you normally associate it with fiction stories right like when you think about we'll take cinderella for example right there's a there's a rising action there's some conflict the climax happens and then you know the shoe fits and then she she marries the prince and it's happily ever after and it follows the same structure but what's helpful about that structure is you can use it for so many other stories so when i'm writing a story for example if i'm doing research about a particular person i'll find out things that have happened in their life that kind of fit that format because i think at the end of the day that's how human beings are wired to listen to stories and pay attention, right? Like something you can't just, um, if nothing is changing in a story, it's very hard to pay attention. So what are the the points of tension? What are the points of change in a story? And how do you make those points of change and tension come to life? And what I found is it's incredibly important to use this method, especially in nonfiction storytelling, because just because it's not 
creative fiction or, you know, you're not writing about swashbuckling adventures doesn't mean that the stories can't be interesting. So even though this storytelling mechanism is, you know, it's old and it's something we learned a long time ago, it's definitely tried and tested. So I've definitely been pushing myself as I write to think about how do I make sure that whatever story I'm trying to tell fits that sort of hero's journey storytelling format. I love how you said there's like different iterations of storytelling where Mm -hmm. like in middle school you learn like what a story is and what it contains and then over time as you absorb more information and you learn about more stories your Mm -hmm. that storytelling process and your ability to tell a story changes as well and whenever I think about these things I think like in elementary school we learned about like BME like beginning middle end you need three paragraphs like that's what a story is Mm -hmm. and you think about that and then in like high school you're like the persuasive essay like you have your right. thesis statement you have your introduction you have your three body paragraphs your support and then you have your conclusion and those things like always stick with me and mm-hmm. i'm super interested in learning about like how how businesses tell stories or how mm. a an influencer tells a story or because everybody is telling a story, whether they like it or not. Like if you're like marketing is storytelling. Right. And I recently read a book and it was, what was it called? I think it was called like story brand brand script. And it was basically like how to frame your business as a story. Mm. And I always refer back to it. It's like this, this PDF document. And it basically says like, a character who meets a guy or a character who has a problem who meets a guide that mm-hmm. gives them guidance that and the tools to do what they need to do. So like you mentioned before, like you have your your beginning and then you have the climax and then you have the story goes down and then there's a resolution. And I think it's so applicable to so many different things and whether you like it or not, like it always goes back to that kind of beginning, middle and end kind of, kind of thing. And it's, yeah, stories are, stories are everywhere. And your ability to tell stories is super important. Right. And I think just to add to that, what I find so interesting about storytelling is, especially when we're thinking about interviews, I'm sure for those of us who have interviewed for, for internships and jobs, we've heard of the star method, right? The star method is just another fancy adult way of saying, this is how you tell a story. Um, and except, uh, except, I mean, the, the difference is that instead of a character being the, the person of focus, it's you who's the person of focus. And you need to convince the interviewer that you, you had some problem, you met some God, and then you were able to overcome that problem, right? So it's interesting because, as you said, the ways in which we learn about stories change over time, but they continue to be relevant even for people who are adults and are working. Exactly. So you, you, you hear the, the Cinderella story, and then you have to... Then you have a job or you have a job <laughs> interview and then you have to go tell a story about yourself. And exactly. anybody that doesn't know what the, the star method is, it's situation, task, action, result. And basically you break down any like, behavioral interview question into those three cat or star S T A R four, four categories, four categories. And it's an effective way to tell people about, you know, something that happens. So for example, if the interviewer asks when, what was the time that you had to overcome conflict in a team and you break down that, 
problem into specific parts, situation, task, action, result. But enough on enough on storytelling. We can move on. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. So what's your where are you at in the book right now? And kind of what's your plan moving forward? It's great that we're talking today, Austin, because I actually submitted my man, my the rough draft of my manuscript on Monday. So I haven't really thank you. Yeah, it's been it's been huge. It's been huge to do that. And it's funny because since I submitted it, I've of course come across more stories. Um, that I want to tell and that I want to include, but I know I need to hold off so that my editor can actually read what I've written and provide critical feedback accordingly. Um, but at this point in the process, I'm sort of done with the major writing parts. I just have to wait to hear back from my editor to make those bigger substantive edits and then to also finally you know, continue writing the chapter that I was telling you about earlier with respect to COVID and Black Lives Matter. Um, and then I'm also going to be starting a pre-sale campaign in the coming week. So I'm really trying to amp up my social media presence to let people know that this book is going to be coming out by the end of the year and they have an opportunity to be part of, you know, the story of, of buying the book um, and reading it and giving me their perspective. So that's where things are headed now with respect to the book process. So speaking of the story of selling the book, what is, <laughs> what is your story? What's your marketing strategy to get people to buy this thing? I think that my marketing strategy to get people to buy this thing is for people to honestly just take a look at what's happening around them at the current moment. And that's why I think the fact that this current, this moment is happening, right? They're, the Black Lives Matter movement is, at, it's at, is almost at its height at this point. And the COVID pandemic, we're seeing a lot of states um, reopening and then changing their minds because of a spike in cases. So there's a lot happening with respect to both healthcare and social justice. So the way that I'd want to package the book is to say, hey, it's really important for us to understand the why. You know, why is it that certain communities are disproportionately at risk, not just for COVID-19, but for a host of other chronic conditions? Why is it that certain communities struggle to access healthcare? Why is it that certain communities suffer bias and discrimination when in healthcare settings? I think it's so critical and so important to not just take what's happening at face value and continue to interrogate and understand the why and recognize, especially for my friends and colleagues in healthcare, that so much of what's happening is happening as a result of what's happening outside of healthcare, right? Um, and how those those things such as, you know, housing and urban planning, education, uh, all of those things, how those things intersect and impact healthcare. So that's what I want people to walk away with with this book is it's so important for us to continue to push and interrogate and ask why so that we can come to better ways to address root cause problems that are associated with healthcare disparities and bad healthcare outcomes. I love how you framed it as answering and starting the starting the conversation with why and taking a step back and really understanding what's going on because it's so easy to get caught up in everything that's going on in social media everybody has an opinion everybody feels the need that they have to be posting things and some things are more relevant than others but ultimately real change comes from when you ask okay why are you why is this being posted what what steps can we take to solve the problem instead of just screaming and I think mm. that that's what the real like since everything is everything that's happened since March when COVID spiked and all of the events that have happened up until now. Mm -hmm. I think that the most important things and the 
my best thoughts have came from having conversations with people that are in the situation and experiencing the things that we're hearing on the news rather than just mm. taking everything the news is telling us or just saying, okay, this, my friend posted this, posted this must be true. Like, no, <laughs> think about what, what your, what's going on. Ask the question, why have the conversation. And I think that that's what's really important about and what makes your book very interesting is that it's introducing the topics and it's making people think about how we can solve the problems that are going on in the world today. It's making problems you know, relevant. Here's some solutions. And like, I want you to think, I want you to think about these things. Mm-hmm. And I think that's so relevant. And I think that it's so valuable, you know, just the, the conversation stepping back and saying, you know, why, why is this happening? How can we solve it? And what can we do to kind of chip away at these issues? Absolutely. And I think the only thing I would add to that is that I would also want to encourage and push my readers to think about the think about what's happening in the context of systems, right? You know, things like Black Lives Matter, things like segregation, things like forced relocation, those things don't exist in vacuums, right? They exist because of the ways in which power structures are set up, um, either at the government level or at other levels. So I think it's really important that we think about, you know, yes, we need to be interrogating and pushing back and asking why, but that why needs to be, you know, it doesn't necessarily need to be incredibly specific. We should be saying why at, you know, systems that have allowed for healthcare disparities in this particular case to happen. Exactly. I like that because a lot of times it's not a clear cut answer. It's not a clear cut question. It's more so mm-hmm. starting the discussion and anything that happens as a result of that discussion that kind of stems from that is is great. And I think that, you know, you get people talking and that's a huge, huge, huge step in the right direction for sure. But mm-hmm. the next thing I want to talk about is you started this journey of writing your own book. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start writing their own book? Yeah, absolutely. I think honestly, for for me personally, the biggest barrier to writing a book was, you know, think thinking about things like my age and my work experience and thinking, you know, I probably don't have very important things to say because I've only been in the workforce for two or three years at this point and I just, you know, I'm currently going through a graduate program and I think Sometimes the stories that we, we're talking about storytelling again, but the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves can sometimes be the greatest barrier. So I think what I would encourage people who are thinking about writing a book is start, you know, start thinking about what you'd want to write about, start mapping out what sorts of research you'd need to be doing and what sorts of people you'd want to talk to and have some faith in the ability, have some faith in the idea that what you have to say is important and what what the angle that you're trying to bring to a particular conversation could be unique and could be something that people haven't considered before. So honestly, I think the the biggest thing about starting to write a book is overcoming your own imposter syndrome and thinking about what are the critical next steps I need to make sure I have the information that I need to get started. This is something that Rahul and I talked about as well, because he was his book, Making Moonshots, he's interviewing mm-hmm. venture capitalists and He's a freshman. Well, now he's a sophomore, but he <laughs> he said he literally said the same thing that you were saying. It's kind of, and I think everybody struggles with this to a degree, and yeah. it's just a matter of stepping outside of your comfort zone. Sent it's we talked about cold emailing before and reaching out to people that and asking them for things that you're uncomfortable 
asking for, even if it's mm-hmm. just 15 minutes of their time, which most people will give you if the, if they're not like super busy. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's just a matter of just getting started. And yeah. like I remember I was talking to my friend yesterday. He wants to start a five minute sports vlog. So and that's kind of tough with things that are going on right now. But right. that's what he he wants to do. And he's like, well, what what do I do to get started? I'm like, well, record yourself talking about sports for five minutes and post it and just forget about it and just get started. And that's just kind of like the, yeah, super, super general advice, but it's so important. Absolutely. And the one thing I'll add is it's for me, it was really interesting because I've had the opportunity now to interact with different people who are writing books through this community that Professor Kester has fostered. And it's interesting that, you know, all of us, regardless of how old we are, so there's, you know, people like Rahul who are early on in their college career, people like me who are in our mid-20s and people who are older in their 30s and 40s, all of us were like, we have no business to be writing a book, right? But we are going to, we're going to be, we're going to do it anyway, because we feel like we have something to say about the topics that we care about. So I think what's been really helpful for me as well is, you know, not just overcoming the imposter syndrome, because I think it's, it's not a, it's not a one-stop deal, right? It's not like, oh, I have, I no longer have imposter syndrome. I'm never going to have it for the rest of my life. It's, you know, I'm going to have it. It's going to crop up every once in a while, but I've been very grateful to fellow authors who have reminded me, no, you do have something interesting and important to say. And it doesn't matter that you're in your mid twenties, you are going to provide a valuable and important perspective. So I think there's definitely a role Um, a a role that community plays in terms of, you know, providing that level of advice and support when doing something as ambitious as writing a book. Exactly. I I totally agree with that. I think that what I've told people who ask me like, hey, I want to start a podcast or hey, I want to do this, but I don't think I'm qualified enough. Um, Mm. The biggest thing is you'll never, you're never going to be qualified. You're never going to have it all planned out. And it's just a matter of getting started. And I 100% agree with the thing you said about having a community that is supporting you, no matter mm-hmm. what you're you're doing. Like you see it mm-hmm. in various aspects of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're you want to get in shape, like go to go to a gym and surround yourself that love that with people who love to do that. If you want to mm-hmm. write a book, surround yourself with people who are authors. If you want to start a podcast, join a Facebook group on about podcasting and just surround yourself and emerge yourself in all of this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So last question, what do you think it mean it means to be gritty and curious? No, oh, that's a great question. I know obviously with, with an obvious allusion to your title podcast title. Um, so for me, when I think about being gritty, part of me wants to think about um, the definition of grit by Angela Duckworth, who is a psychologist from the University of Pennsylvania who's researched this topic. But I think what grit ultimately is, is it's sort of this determination and this drive to to focus on something, generally something that's a long-term project or something that might, might have a couple of obstacles along the way. And so I think in order to be gritty, you need to push yourself and ask questions and not give up when things seem to get difficult. And then I think the curious part we've already sort of touched on a little bit. I think being curious requires you to ask the question why and not just take things at face value or not just accept things the way that they are. And I think honestly, for me, sometimes it's it's very easy to not be curious, right? To just accept what's happening and just take it and you know run your life on autopilot. 
And that's why I think it's really important to think about, you know, the ways in which children view the world. Children are curious all the time about, you know, sometimes things that are so mundane, like why is the sky blue? Why can you see through glass? You know, why can you freeze water? These types of questions. And I'm not saying that we need to be doing that as people who are older, but we need to be maintaining that same kind of mindset of, Let's ask questions when we don't know the answers or let's ask questions about things that don't make sense to us and let's be determined and and gritty about it at the same time. So I think um, I appreciate you asking about both of those things at the same time, because I think curiosity is a mindset and grit is the road that helps you get there. I love how you you put that. And Grit by Angela Duckworth is like one of my favorite books. (laughs) Nice. Yeah, I, I refer back to it every once in a while, and it actually inspired the naming of this podcast. But going back to your definition of curiosity and how you mentioned that children are so curious about everything that goes on in the world. Mm-hmm. Like I remember when I was I was younger, my parents would always give me books, and it was like hundred questions, answers to questions, interesting questions, or something like that. And I would mm-hmm. have I would have like multiple books that about these things. And every time I opened it, it was like, oh, my God, you just want to learn so much about whatever that topic is. Right. Mm-hmm. And I think that it's so important for people to never get complacent with questioning what's going on in the world around them. And obviously, things get more complicated as you get get older and there's lots more priorities and things that are pulling you in different directions, but always mm-hmm. having the being curious and having the curiosity to ask the important questions or just questions that you're genuinely curious about. Mm -hmm. So thank you just so much for coming on. And thank you for that great answer. I've been asking people (laughs) that at the, I just started doing that a few episodes ago and I love, love hearing how people, how people answer it. And I think you answered it perfectly. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And it was, it was a lot of fun to chat with you today. Yeah. Thank you so much, Anja. Yeah, you too. Take care. You've been listening to The Gritty and Curious Show, where we have conversations with gritty and curious people. If you enjoyed this show, you'd be the best if you subscribed, left a rating, and wrote a quick review. By doing this, you let me know you're listening and it inspires me to keep creating. Until next time, stay gritty and curious.